Amen. You may go ahead and be seated. So good to see you this morning. If you don't know me, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Miller Heights Baptist Church. So good to worship with you. Uh, As Landon said, if you're a college student, we're really glad that you're here. We love college students at Miller Heights Baptist Church. We hope your time here in Belton is awesome. And one of the ways to make that awesome is to be part of a healthy local church. And so we hope that you'll find a church and get involved there, listen to the Bible preached and the gospel uh, proclaimed, and get to know some people older than you, get to know some people younger than you. And if you want to do that here, we would love that and be grateful to God for leading you here. We can do life together. Well, we're in the middle of a sermon series about the promises of God, standing on the promises, where we're just considering some of the precious and very great promises in Scripture. And in just a moment, we're going to be in one of my favorite promises in Romans chapter 8. So you can go ahead and turn there, but let's all pray together now. Lord, our hearts are filled with thankfulness for you, for who you are, for your glory and your greatness, and for what you have done for us, for what you have done in history for sending your own Son to suffer and die for our sins, for what you've done throughout church history in building your church and redeeming your people. We also thank you for what you've done in our history, for how you've invaded our lives, for how you've stopped us in our tracks, for how you've awakened us from our slumber, for how you've drawn us to this moment. And we thank you also, our hearts are filled with thankfulness for what you've promised to be for us in the future. That you've not just done good things for us and left us to figure it out on our own, but you've promised us grace for this moment and the next moment and through all eternity. And we pray that you would help us to believe your promises. Not just believe them and agree with them, but to stand on them, to claim them, to to live them out, to embrace them as true and beautiful and life-changing. God, would you help us this morning to see this promise in Romans 8.32 and you would help us to put this promise at the very foundation and core of our lives. That we would view all of life through this, your good and precious promise and we would see this promise as yes and amen in Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would, you would do that work in us today. Do your work. Do August 7th, 2022's work in us now to mature us and complete us and to press us on toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. Lord, help us to endure and finish well. And it's to that end I pray you'd speak to us now. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All of us are worriers. Who among us could claim to be totally free from anxiety? And the reason we worry, the reason we fear, the reason we have anxiety is because we tell ourselves things that aren't true. Things that our imagination makes up. When we were children, our anxieties are usually pretty silly. Will I get invited to Sally's birthday party? Will my brother get a bigger cupcake than me? But as we age, our fears get more significant, and they begin to paralyze us. What if my friends laugh at me? What if I don't get accepted in the right group of friends? 
What if I fail the test? What if I strike out and lose the game? As we become adults, our anxieties get ramped up. We worry as to whether we'll ever be able to find a spouse or whether we'll ever get a job. Will I be able to pay my bills? What if my marriage is unhappy? What if I can't have kids? What if I get sick? What if my spouse gets sick? What if something happens to my kids? How will I afford health insurance? Will I be attacked? Can I make it as a widow or widower? What if I lose all my friends? What if I have to move away from my hometown? What if I become a burden to others? What if I die alone? Worry is a spiritual killer. It weaves a web of unbelief and tempts us to get trapped in its lies. Worry and anxiety and fear paralyzes us so that we're unable to give ourselves in love to God and to others. Ed Welch has a fantastic book about anxiety called Running Scared. In that book, Welch makes some very insightful observations about worriers. He says, worriers live in the future. Worriers use their imagination to project worst-case scenarios onto the future. Worriers have this ability to see nothing but the gory details of the future. And to the worrier, the future is always bleak and disappointing. Also, Welch says that worriers are immune to reason. In other words, worry is irrational. Worry doesn't listen to sound reason and arguments to not worry. Like no matter how many times you give a worrier an argument, a reason, logic, the worrier will not be persuaded. Well, because God knows this about us, God has given to us in His Word sound reason and logic and wisdom and truth to combat the irrationality of our deepest fears. God's Word contains not just commands to not worry, but rock-solid reason to never worry. And when we hear the teaching of God's Word, when we are confronted with God's promises about the future, all of our anxiety should dissolve in light of the clear logic of heaven. When we think about promises of God, promises are by nature future. God promises future grace. He promises that something will be true tomorrow and the next day and for all eternity. And so promises... If you're a worrier, if you're one who has anxiety and fear, promises should be your best friend. Because worriers live in the future. Worriers live in the worst case scenarios and God's promises come to us and say, here are some things that are true about tomorrow and about all eternity. And So in order to serve us this morning, I want us to meditate on and delight in a promise that contains what I believe is the worry killer. Romans 8.32 is it's like a bundle of dynamite that we need to place at the base of our anxiety and watch it all burn to the ground. And so look with me at Romans chapter 8, verse 32. I'm actually going to read verses 31 and 32. So let's meditate on these verses for a few minutes as we prepare ourselves to partake of the Lord's Supper together. Romans 8.31 What then... Shall we say to these things? 
If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? I think verse 31 is a summary of all that Paul has said up until this point in the book of Romans. These things in verse 31 refers to the Gospel that Paul has been explaining. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we can be sure that God loves us and has a good plan for us. And the scope of this Gospel, the scope of this good news, has left Paul speechless. Notice all he can ask is, what shall we say to these things? Like, what is the response to all of these glories? These glories, he says, are so lofty, so great, that we cannot totally comprehend them. And yet, and yet even in his dumbfoundness, Paul does not remain silent at this point. He goes on explaining and summarizing what God has done for us. Notice verse 31 again. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So here's Paul's summary of the Gospel. God has called us to Himself. He has justified us by His grace. He's given His Son as a sacrifice for us. And He's united us to Jesus by faith. In other words, Paul says, God is for us. God is for us. This is breathtaking news, friends. Almighty God is for us, not against us. Because of our sin, God should be against us. But because of the work of Jesus, beautiful God is for us. Here's truth to preach to your anxiety. Here's truth to preach to your deepest fears. Almighty God is for you in Jesus. If you're united to Jesus by faith, God is not against you. He is eternally for you. And if God is for you, no one can successfully be against you. As His blood-bought children, God is entirely for us and never against us. King David had a dark period in his life, a particularly dark period in his life, where everyone wanted to kill him, it seemed like. He was constantly on the run because Saul wanted to kill him. He hid in caves. He fled to enemy cities in order to avoid Saul's wrath. And as he was captured by the Philistines, the enemies of the people of God, in the city of Gath, he wrote Psalm 56, which Landon read earlier in the service. And in Psalm 56, David described how he felt with the people who were trampling him and oppressing him. And instead of fretting, David put his trust in God. And he made this declaration. David said, This I know that God is for me. This I know, this I'm confident enough that God is for me. In these dark and painful days, David remembered that God was for him and not against him. Friends, what comfort and peace we could have if we could remember, if we could know that God is for us. But how do we know? 
I mean, it's fine for me to stand here and say this. It's fine to read it, but how do we know that God is for us? Like, how can we be certain that God is for us? Well, Romans 8.32 is the answer to that question. Our security that God is for us is grounded in the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. God is for us means that God promises overflowing and never-ending generosity to us. Look at verse 32 again. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Notice there are two parts to the logic of verse 32. This is an argument from the greater to the lesser. Or from the hard to the easy. Paul is saying, if God has done the harder thing, then God will certainly do the easier thing. Since God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up to torture and suffering and punishment, that's the greater thing. Then He will certainly give us everything that Jesus purchased for us. That's the lesser thing. Consider an example of this kind of greater to lesser argument. What if you had a very kind neighbor, and one morning your neighbor came outside and noticed that you had a flat tire on your car? Knowing that you would be needing to go to work very soon, the neighbor just got his jack and changed your tire before you ever knew that you even had a flat tire. And just as he was lowering the jack and putting away his tools, you come in a hurry out of the house because you're already late for a meeting. And when you realize what just happened, you're filled with gratitude at what this neighbor has just done for you. Your neighbor refuses to allow you to pay him. He insists that you get going to your meeting. And as you get in the car, as you begin to back up, you look in the rearview mirror and you realize that your son left his basketball right in the middle of the driveway, right behind your car. And so, as your neighbor is gathering his tools and getting to make his way across the lawn to his house, you roll down your window and you kindly ask if he, would, if he would mind removing the ball so that you can back out and get to your meeting. Do you think that the neighbor would say, are you kidding me? Why do you think I would do anything else for you? Wasn't changing your tire enough? Well, you could imagine maybe there's some people who would act that way, but No. There's no doubt in your mind that the neighbor will quickly get the ball, right? Why? Why do you know that the neighbor will quickly get the ball? Because if he did the harder thing, change your tire, he will certainly do the lesser thing. Doing the harder thing makes the easier thing guaranteed. And so Paul says, if God the Father did the harder thing, if he gave up his son to death for us, then why would we worry that he wouldn't give us everything that we need? There's no greater thing in the universe that God could do for us than to give His own Son for us. And so, Paul says, He's not going to withhold any good thing from us. It would be absurd for God to give His Son for us and not give you all good things that Jesus purchased for you. This verse, this promise is a death blow to our anxiety-laden hearts. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross proves that God is for you, not against you. 
He will certainly give you everything you need to trust Him. And so consider verse 32 in two parts. That's the logic of verse 32. But let's dive down a little bit deeper. Two parts to the logic. First, what God has done. And second, what God has promised. Notice what God has done and what God has promised. First, what God has done. So in the first half of verse 32, Paul says, God the Father didn't do something and did do something. The Father didn't spare His own Son, but He did give His own Son up. Consider how this verse speaks of the relationship between the Father and the Son. Notice how Jesus is described in verse 32. He's described as His own Son. You see, Jesus is the unique and special Son of God. Jesus is the pre-existent, co-eternal, not created Son of the Father. Jesus is the exact image of the Father in whom all the fullness of deity dwells. And Jesus, as the Son of God, existed before He became a man. For all eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have had perfect harmony, perfect unity with one another. The affection between the Father and the Son could not be any greater. And so when verse 32 calls Jesus His own Son, it's highlighting the fact that there are no others as infinitely precious to the Father as Jesus. Remember how during Jesus' ministry, multiple times throughout His ministry, the Father spoke audibly from heaven about His delight in His Son. The Father would break open the heavens and say, this is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. The Father deeply loves His Son. There's nothing the Father loves more than the image of Himself displayed in His Son. And so because of the love between the Father and the Son, here's what John Piper says about the point of Romans 8.32. He says it this way. He says the point of verse 32 is that the love of God for His one and only Son was like a massive Mount Everest obstacle standing between Him and our salvation. Here was an obstacle almost insurmountable. Could God, would God overcome His cherishing, admiring, treasuring, white-hot, affectionate bond with His Son and deliver Him over to be lied about and betrayed and abandoned and mocked and flogged and beaten and spit upon and nailed to a cross and pierced with a sword like an animal being butchered? Would God really do that? Would He hand over the Son of His love? If He would, then whatever goal He was pursuing could never be stopped. If that obstacle were overcome in the pursuit of His good, every obstacle would be overcome. So Paul says the Father did not spare His own Son. We hear in this phrase the enormous difficulty of what the Father did. He did not spare His own Son the horrible treatment of the cross. The language here in verse 32 echoes the language of Genesis chapter 22, where God asked Abraham to kill his only son, his own son, Isaac. Abraham was willing to do it. He was not willing to spare the son of his love. But God did spare Isaac. 
God did not allow Abraham to sacrifice his own son. God spared Abraham's son, but God did not spare his own son. God the Father could have spared Jesus, but he did not. And we know the gospel truth. The reason the Father did not spare His own Son is so that He could spare us. Because the Father did not spare Jesus, He is able to rescue us from His infinitely holy wrath and condemnation. And so Paul says God didn't spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. God the Father was not a passive observer to the death of Jesus on the cross. The Father is the one ultimately responsible for the death of His Son. He's the one who gave Him up. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. It wasn't ultimately the Jews. It wasn't ultimately the Romans who killed Jesus. His Father gave Him up to the torture and pain and shame and suffering of the cross. Now, Paul says that the Father gave Him up for us all. And in that, Paul is not saying every single person has salvation because of the work of Jesus. The all here clearly points back to verses 28 through 30, where the all is defined as those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. God gave up His Son for those who were predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And so this morning, if you're trusting in Jesus alone, you are part of this all who benefit from the Father delivering up His Son to death. This is what God has done. This is the most difficult thing imaginable for God to do. He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. And according to verse 32, what does that mean for us? What does that mean? What is the promise that God gives in this verse? What is true for us Because the Father did not spare His own Son. Notice secondly what God promises for us. If God did the most difficult thing imaginable, if He did the greater thing, Paul states the obvious. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? If God did not withhold His own Son, He will certainly not withhold any good thing from us who are united to Jesus by faith. Now, before your mind fills up the meaning of all things that God will graciously give us, consider the context of this unbelievable promise. Remember, we saw this a couple weeks ago in Romans 8, 28-30. Let's just read it again so that we can fill up the meaning of all things. What will God give us? He will give us these things. And we know, verse 28, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. And so what does Paul mean by all things? Well, Paul has in mind all the things that pertain to our salvation and our glorification in Christ. In other words, God will keep us trusting in Him until the end. 
He will not let us out of His loving kindness. He will shower us with every blessing that He has promised us and more. And so the all things God promises to graciously give us is to be viewed as all things that are ultimately good for us. So listen, this isn't a promise that God will give us the house or the spouse of our dreams. This promise is 10 million times better than that. This is a promise that we will lack nothing that God deems to be good for us. And God knows way better than we do what's ultimately good for us. Friends, you can take this promise to the bank. The Father did not spare His own Son, and so He will not spare any blessings that we need to know and trust Him for all eternity. Listen, Romans 8.32 means that God always does what is good for His people. Always. He always does what is good for His people. If you're in Christ this morning, whatever's going on in your life is good for you. Even suffering and persecution and discipline. God knows what is best and He only gives His best to His children. He is for you. He is not against you in Christ. Do you see how this absolutely kills anxiety and worry? I mean, how can anxiety and worry and fear live in the midst of this promise. All of our fears are about what could happen to us, right? There's a lot we could be afraid of in this world. This world is a scary place. But worries are false prophets. Worries don't speak the truth to us. Because Romans 8.32 says that if we're in Christ, what God sends into our lives is good for us. We may not immediately see the good in losing a job or enduring pain or having to bury a loved one, but God is in control of all these things. If He gave His beloved Son, do you think anything at all can thwart His plan to graciously give us all things? And so the only appropriate response to this truth right now is to repent of all of our worry, all of our anxiety, all of our godless fear. Turn away from the lies of your worries and turn to the truth. Here's the truth. The Father has given His Son to die in our place for our sins. And along with Him, along with a Savior who died in our place, He promises to give us all things that are good for us. And if He did the more difficult thing, He will certainly do the easier thing. So friends, this is a great passage, great promise to meditate on before we partake of the Lord's Supper. This is a great Sunday for us to come to the Lord's table and remember His death because the message of the Lord's Supper is this message, that the Father did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. Gave Him up to suffering and death and mistreatment and lies so that we could have every good thing promised to us. The bread and the cup are going to remind us of what God has done and what God has promised to be for us. Jesus' body was broken. His blood was poured out for our sin. Even our sins of worry. Even our sinful fear. 
Friends, Jesus didn't come to die for righteous people who have perfect faith and no doubt there are no people like that. There are only anxiety-filled rebels like us. And so if you know yourself to be a sinner this morning, this table is for you. Jesus invites you to acknowledge your lack of faith in Him. And He invites you to come and enjoy the bountiful provision of His grace that He has promised for you. Are you full of worry and fretting today? Then come to Jesus and be filled with His grace. Does your chest tighten up when you think about the future? Then come to Jesus and hear His promise that He is for you and He is not against you. Do you have a tendency to cast worst-case scenarios onto the future? Find rest now in the fact that the Father did not spare His own Son. Listen, beloved, if you come to Jesus by faith, He will never mock you for your anxiety. He will never tell you that you're just getting what you deserve. He won't tire of of you or, or get irritated by you and and walk away. He won't say, you're so stubborn. Why won't you listen? He won't tell you that He's wasting His time by helping you. He won't quit. He won't turn His back. He pours mercy on the proud and the selfish and the worrier. He doesn't ask us to clean ourselves up before we come to Him. No, He with open arms welcomes us. He wraps His arms around the broken and the messed up around us. There's no problem that He cannot solve. There's no addiction that He cannot break. And there is no worry that He can't soothe. He will graciously give us all things. And so if you're trusting in Jesus this morning, you've been invited to a feast this morning that is meant to satisfy your soul. It's a feast you don't deserve. You have not been faithful. I have not been faithful. But enjoying this grace is not dependent on us. Enjoying this feast is possible only because God is faithful to His promises. But if you're not trusting in Jesus this morning, you should not partake of these elements. This is not for you. If Jesus is not your treasure, if you do not trust Him as your Savior, you should plead with God to change your heart right now. Ask Him to help you repent of your sins and embrace Jesus as the master of your life. And the good news is that God can do that right now. He can do that right now in this moment. And so run to Jesus. He alone can save. He alone can rescue. And so as 1 Corinthians 11 commands us to do, we're going to take a moment to examine ourselves before we partake of these elements. Uh, Mike and the, the music team are going to come and they're going to lead us in a song of reflection and self-examination as they lead us in this song. Take some time to believe this promise, to consider what God has done and what God has promised. Take a moment to repent of your anxiety and worry and cling to the promise of Romans 8.32. And in just a moment, we'll together partake of these elements.